the fact is that uh, we're here to do interesting stories. Right. I'm not the story. And uh, I just wanted to uh, uh, make him feel better. That there is a sampling from my guest this episode, the incomparable Ed Randall. Hey everyone, Benjamin Block here, and thanks for tuning in to the latest installment of Block's Corner. Longtime sports journalist and radio host of WFAN's weekly program, Ed Randall's Talking Baseball, Ed's compassion and activism separate him from being just any journalist. Trust me when I say you'll want to hear the stories he shares with me on this episode, as they're definitely a home run. And flexing his four-plus decades of being around baseball professionally, Ed does a little Yankees and Mets forecasting ahead of the 2019 season. And now, here's Ed and I talking baseball. It's freezing in mid-February in New York, right? But cold doesn't seem to seem as bad because this is the time of year where guys are finally down and baseball's underway in Florida. So how excited are you that baseball's back? Well, it's just uh, psychically, even though I'm not there, regrettably, just knowing that somebody's popping a catcher's mitt someplace makes me feel warmer, even when there's wind chills temperatures outside. <laughs> exactly. Baseball is officially back. And and last Sunday, your debut show started with a bang. You know, for those listening, Ed Randall's Talking Baseball on WFAN Sunday mornings. A lot of mixed emotions, right? I mean, you opened the show, which I thought was great, with Mike Mussina honoring his Hall of Fame induction and then, obviously, with the news, the very sad news of Frank Robinson's passing on Thursday, February 7th, onto more devastating news about Mel Stottlemyre, great pitcher, famed Yankees pitching coach as well, uh, finally succumbing to multiple myeloma, that form of uh, bone marrow cancer after a really long and courageous fight you had on his son, Mel Stottlemyre Jr., and you had Davey Johnson also talking about Frank Robinson, who told some amazing stories. Just so many mixed emotions. Can you sort of put that uh, all in, into words, looking looking back on that opening show this past Sunday? Well, I uh, Frank was uh, legendary, and uh, even though he never played uh, for a New York team, uh, he did play against the Mets in the 1969 World Series. And uh, he, his uh, presence transcended whatever uniform he wore. And uh, I thought it would be uh, great to have Davey Johnson, who, of course, is a very popular presence here locally, on to talk about him. And uh, I was uh, very grateful for the stories that uh, that he told. And uh, he made the interview really easy because he brought up things that I was going to get to uh, later on in the interview. As far as as far as Mel Jr. is concerned, um, I was uh, um, I didn't say it on the air, but I, I was the one who got him to the multiple myeloma research foundation really uh, and uh yeah what happened was that uh on the yankees opened up i believe it was on easter sunday um one year in seattle and i got a phone call from uh from kathy Justy, who is the founder of the multiple myeloma research foundation for whom i had uh, helped out previously and she said when the yankees go on the air this afternoon at four o'clock they're going to announce that mel's got 
multiple myeloma, and I almost dropped the phone. Oh my gosh! And then, and then from there, uh, from Seattle, the Yankees customarily do the other two cities on the West Coast, Oakland and uh, and the Angels. Sure. And so I said, I'll get on this when uh, when when they return. So um, in the old ballpark, I was waiting for uh, I was waiting outside the old coach's office, and he comes out, and uh, I said to him, and I had known him of course for years, having been a a reporter and everything, and and in fact, what we first met when I was a kid in the Pacific Coast League when he was with the Seattle Mariners, and uh, really? I said yeah. I said to him, uh, here's uh, here's the deal. I said you're not going to go through this alone. I said there is this fantastic organization in Connecticut called the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, and I'm going to get you and Gene to to them if if you're okay with that, and uh, take the terror out of this. So uh, he said absolutely. So then wow. I made arrangements with the Yankees for Kathy to come down uh, from Connecticut one day. I said, Mel, what time do you come in? He said, about 2 o'clock. I said, what time would be convenient to meet Kathy? And he said, probably about 2.30. So uh, one day, uh, Kathy came to the old press gate, and I met her. We walked downstairs and uh, walked down the famous ramp to the uh, dugout. And Mel came down, and that's where they met. And a fantastic, loving relationship was born then. So... I, uh, with, with that background and, uh, and, and Mel passing away, I had called Todd, I, excuse me, I had called Mel Jr. after his passing and, uh, a couple of times cause uh, I know the family and, and then, uh, eventually I said, look, uh, and this was, uh, during the week last week, I said, look, I, I, I don't know what to, what to say here. Uh, we loved him. And I said, there is nobody, nobody who played for both or had an association with both franchises locally who was more beloved than your dad by both fan bases, not Tory, not Cone, not Strawberry, not Casey Stengel, not George Weiss, your dad. And I said, I just want to offer you this. If you'd like to come on, you can, first of all, you're going to break the phone system yeah. because everybody's going to come on and tell you how much they loved him. And I think you might feel a little bit better. And in that conversation, he was sort of, having trouble holding it together uh, before he said, uh, yeah, I'll do it. And so then when we spoke uh, on Saturday, he said, I need to do this for my dad and I need to do this for the, for the fans that loved him. So it was a, it was a great spot and I was grateful to have him on. And that's a tremendous job by you. And you could hear it in his voice and Kathy Juicy participating in, in the phone call. I think she was calling in from what sounded yeah, like a trip. It. Yeah, they were on vacation. It yeah. was just absolutely amazing. In, and, and the callers, like you said, you could just oh. hear it. The range of, of ages and memories that they had were, were, were just uh, over the top. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and a tremendous job for you. Was wow. it, uh, do you think it was uh, a real form of catharsis for, uh, for Mel yeah, Stoudemire I Jr.? Long, I, got a long, uh, I got a long text message for him within a half hour after we got off the air. And uh, expressing his gratitude for coming on about how glad he was that he did it. That must rank up yeah. there as one of uh, you know one of the at least best feeling or, or just maybe best overall interviews that you've done in your long career. Uh, memorable yeah. for sure. I, I don't really take any credit about it. The, the, the fact is that uh, we're here to do interesting stories. Right. I'm not the story, and uh, I just wanted to uh, uh, make him feel better. Well, it, it sounds like he did, uh, or that you did that. So, uh, good, good on you for that, for sure. Thanks. This seems a little odd because you just said you don't like the story being on you, and that's evident in the in the work that you've done uh, over mm-hmm. the years. 
but could you talk a little bit about yourself? You know, was there was there a seminal moment for you when you fell in love with the sport of baseball or some kind of genesis? I, I know about your involvement with baseball from a youth, but can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, it was the only sport as a kid growing up in the Bronx I could play well. <laughs> um, I never got into football because I couldn't I couldn't bear the thought of knocking somebody else down or worse, them knocking me down. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, when it came time to take the class picture um, every year in school, I was always one of the short guys up, uh, up front. So basketball, like the basket seemed like it was in the sky somewhere. <laughs> so that didn't happen. And then as far as hockey was concerned and ice, ice was something that you put in your parents' uh, cocktails. So, you know, ice was... There was no, there was no hockey in the Bronx. So it was all, it was all about baseball. And, uh, I just have had this incredible love affair with it, um, ever since I was a kid. And amazingly, as I've gone through life, that, uh, fire for the sport has never diminished. And I just am uh, just very lucky that, as I say, at the end of the show, uh, what Ernie Harwell once said to me, lucky is the man to whom God gives a job that he loves. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great quote. I like how you end your shows with that. So almost baseball became your, you know, this love affair with baseball sort of came about from almost like uh, eliminating other sports, you could say. Mm-hmm. And and I read somewhere that so you tried you were you were a pitcher and and you got pretty far, correct? Well, I the high school unfortunately didn't have a team. So that was a problem. So I played sandlot ball. I played summer ball. And I actually played summer ball for the same team called Eastchester that uh, was located in the Bronx, not in Westchester. It was called Eastchester. Oh, that's what I was going to ask and, you. Uh, okay. And I played for uh, I played for the same team that years before Ken Singleton played for. Oh, no and way. And Von White played after me. Wow. Uh, but let's not confuse their talents with mine. Um, <laughs> Still you know, an affiliation. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just really, really terrific. And uh I loved, I loved, I loved playing and I loved pitching, but, uh, I uh, had an opportunity right after high school to try out with the Kansas city Royals. And, uh, but I thought if I was good enough to play at a high school, I'd be good enough to play at a college. I never, I would have made it to the major leagues, uh, 15 minutes after the first pig flew out of LaGuardia airport. Okay, <laughs> let's get that straight. Because when I went to, uh, when I went to Elmira, New York, to start my broadcast career, my doing play by play, um, I, I saw things that I had never seen before it, with professional ball. And this is the bottom of the barrel. This is the New York Penn League and uh, in terms of classification. and uh, I, Which kind of confirmed know, your maybe. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. That year I was in Elmira, my first year, we had this elderly league president who I came to adore named Vince McNamara. And I went up to visit him once in uh, Buffalo. Um, and he, he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, these players are touched by God. And I thought, wow, what an expression. And I've How profound. for that through the years because they really are. I was not, period, end of story. So I'm, I've been fortunate enough to be able to hang around the game for as long as I have um, and establish uh, countless friendships and relationships um, by being able to do the next best thing. Yeah, you've done that and, and more. So in 1974, is that right? When... Mm-hmm. Okay, when your career started in Elmira, and what uh, what memories, struggles, uh, things that you're proud of, do you remember from those early days? Well, I think the one, the, the only story you need to know is I took the job for free. 
I, I had worked at WFUV where so many other people have come out of. Um, oh, sure. The, through the years. And uh, uh, I, it, it's a long, incredible story of how I wound up in Elmira. But uh, the bottom line here is the bottom line was zero. I did not get paid. And then eventually, uh, two weeks into the season, I showed our multimillionaire owner of the team my empty wallet. And he put his arm around me and he said, Skippy, called everybody Skippy. Skippy, <laughs> Skippy I'm going to pay you $3 a game. Don't laugh. I got $6 for double headers. <laughs> and so I walked uh, one day in the afternoon. I walked down Main Street in Elmira, went into McDonald's. And uh, since all our games were at night, I uh, got that... a job in McDonald's during the day in the back dressing your Big Macs, wearing a paper hat that said trainee on the side. Wow. I still, have a, I still have a pay stub from McDonald's. And uh, Just to... and that's how I supplemented my, I supplemented my income. And I made... I got to tell you, when you walk into McDonald's with a Bachelor of Arts degree from a leading Jesuit institution like Fordham University, you got a really good shot at getting that job. Yeah, how bad you you wanted it that badly? Clearly. Yeah. So I worked in McDonald's during the day, and I did the games at night. I lived with Whitey Ford's son that summer. He was the number one draft choice of the Boston Red Sox, shortstop at the University of South Carolina. He played for Bobby Richardson down there, and that was the summer that Whitey and Mickey together went into the Baseball Hall of Fame. No way. How did you know Whitey Ford's son, or how did that connection come about? He showed up. We drafted uh, the Red Sox. Uh, we were Boston Red Sox affiliate, and the Red Sox drafted Eddie number one out of uh, out of University of South Carolina, and they assigned him to Elmira. No way. And he shows and he shows up, and I'm in this flop house, basically. And I go <laughs> up to him, and I go, you know, I got an extra bedroom if you're interested. Just like that. And, that, and just like that. So we spent the summer together. Whitey came through... Uh, Whitey came through to see him. I had him on the air with me. It was an out-of-body experience. Really? And I still have, uh, they called them back in the day, snapshots. <laughs> I have a picture of me and Whitey behind our uh, behind the microphone in Elmira. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I mean, I'm just listening to the story, and you have you have the paraphernalia from McDonald's, and you have a snapshot from Whitey Ford, really kind of in the, in, in the same breath or same time period of your life. Um, you know, so. Well, what's really crazy, what's really crazy also is years later, I'm working for ESPN uh -huh. as their New York reporter. And it's Old Timers Day, which is the day in which Ed becomes, again, 12 years old. <laughs> and so I go into the old auxiliary locker room at Yankee Stadium, the old clubhouse. Whitey sees me. All these players are getting dressed. Whitey comes over, puts his arm around me, and he walks me around the room. And he introduces me to Mantle and Berra and all the gods that are in the room. Get Bauer, out of here. All these guys. And, and, you know, this year's – and he goes, so this year's Eddie Randall. You know, he lived with Eddie and Elmira uh, <laughs> when he got started. And now look at him. He's working for ESPN. Isn't that great? That's amazing. That. That's amazing. Were your feet even on the floor? Oh, I just was just like, oh, my God. You know, just, oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, they have been uh, really good to me, and I still have a wonderful relationship with the family. That is just, that's just remarkable. The stories <laughs> that, that, that you've accumulated are are just Absolutely incredible. We obviously touched on this just a few minutes ago when you're talking, you know, about what it meant to you to have Mel Stoudemire Jr. on the show. You've been as involved for stuff off the field, specifically your Fans for the Cure nonprofit that you started, I think, in 2003, which raises awareness right. for prostate cancer, specifically focusing on guarding against late stage diagnosis. And, and I, I can personally say I... I have been touched by this indirectly, and um, and I know a lot of people have both indirectly and directly. Talk about how close that cause has 
been to your heart? All the time that I'm not on the air, um, it's all about the charity. The remaining 70 to 80 hours a week is uh, promoting the charity, making it matter, uh, getting the message out there that there's an almost 99% cure rate of prostate cancer is detected early, <laughs> telling men they simply need to just go to the doctors every year. That's it. And that we believe at the charity in zero tolerance that nobody should die of prostate cancer versus what we saw in 2018 where more than 28,000 men died, we believe, needlessly from the disease mm. because presumably they never went to the doctors. So it's enormously important to me. Uh, God gave me, as I like to use a baseball expression, a second embedded life when I was 47 years old. And I think he uh, said some mystical reason why he kept me around. And I think that's when I was born that uh, at 47 to do this. And uh, I'm uh, very proud of our work. We have a lot more work to do. Um, I tell, I go to spring training. I talk to do a, I do a tour of spring training camps, talk to 1500 players, tell the players, I'm the only CEO you're ever going to meet who hopes to go out of business. By the time you guys get off the field today, there's a cure for prostate cancer, in which case I'm gone. Until that time, I will be the car alarm you cannot turn off about this. So the fact that uh, I have this show on WFAN, the fact that it's number one in its time slot, the fact that I'm permitted to talk about the charity every week on the air, I am the only person in America, I am certain, who stops a show every week to talk about this because this is my demographic that's listening to the show. Mm -hmm. This is this is a batting practice fastball right here. <laughs> so uh, it is uh, it's it's really curious to me, and I'm so gratified that I'm becoming almost as well known. Uh, for the charity as I am for my years on the air. That's really great. And have you have you been able to, uh, are there some players past and, or present that, that you've been able to really get through and touch that have helped you along in your cause? Well, we have what we call our Legends for Life Advisory Board, which is now made up of 128 former players who wow. themselves have been affected by prostate cancer, members of their family have. And we have six Hall of Famers. Uh, who have who have had it? Uh, Frank Robinson, now may he rest in peace. Brooks Robinson, Carl Fisk, Andre Dawson, Phil Negro, Jim Tomey, his grandfather had it, so he's on. Oh wow! Ken Griffey Sr. is on our advisory board. He lost four uncles who died from prostate cancer. Oh my gosh! And the fact that the fact that and and, and Griff had it too, and the fact that he has had it doubles Ken Griffey Jr.'s chances of getting it down the road. So we have a lot of influence, 128 people who we have the privilege of using their names on our advisory board. Um, and uh, it's very important to have that, uh, to, to have them with us. No question. And you'll be going to the camps this year as, um, as in last? Not 100% sure yet, but they're working on it. Okay. All right. Can we talk a little bit about baseball? Sure. You know, just forecasting both local clubs here, Yankees and Mets, you know, you were talking to a couple of the beat writers from both respective teams. In terms of stories, since you're since you're so good at weaving stories, uh, what are some of the what are some of the bigger ones or smaller ones for that matter that you look at this year for both clubs storylines to follow? Well, I think uh, starting with the Mets, uh, they're far superior right now in camp projecting the team that the 25 they're going to put into city field than they had when they wrapped it up in September. They're much, much better. Um, and there's going to be a lot of really good storylines there. 
I'm anxious to see how the kid does at first base, Pete Alfonso, mm-hmm. after uh, beating the minor leagues with 36 home runs, 119 RBI. You know, nobody hits 36 home runs anymore in minor league baseball. <laughs> so uh, he's a moose. Um, can he play? Can he's got to play the position, and hopefully he's not going to kill him defensively. I think that's important. Um, uh, I think it's important, as I mentioned to Mike Puma, if uh, if Cano is going to look like he's interested in playing baseball. At those, at those prices. Of, yeah, when things are going well, people are, are in awe and amazement of his casual and loosey-goosey style. But I think, right, the uh, the other side of that is when it doesn't go well, you know, you have all those negative adjectives that you could throw at him as well. Yeah, I think uh, defensively they're going to be a lot better with Jed Lowry. Uh, defensively they were horrifically bad. And uh, you got the kids that uh, like Conforto and Nimmo uh, that uh, – energize the team and hopefully will be uh, will be productive they're pitching they, they will go as far as their pitching takes them and it's a it's always a risk to depend on starting pitching like that which they've done now for three straight years but they think they can ride that to the promised land i hope that for their sake and for their mets fans i hope they uh, they're able to close the deal yeah, it almost seems as if more pressure hinges on Wheeler this year than than it does Degrom and Syndergaard. Just just because I think they're they're so hungry for him well, they're, to they're, be consistent. So, yeah, those first two guys are known entities. Sure. So Wheeler was. I still can't believe that they, that Sandy Alderson got Wheeler out of the San Francisco system. They knew that Dultran wasn't going to resign, and uh, now he's finally healthy and he's showing everybody what he can do. He's a great talent. Yeah. Absolutely. So hopefully uh, we'll, I guess the only thing to be seen among, you know, among the the starting pitchers for the Mets right now is if DeGrom can get uh, contract talks going for an extension or or if the story is going to be that he's going to shut it down until after the season. So, you know, they, they, they uh, the Mets know what they have to do and they have to uh, they have to act like a large market team. And uh, Brody has helped. Uh, convinced the Wilpons to do that, which I think is a huge achievement. And uh, they can't let this guy leave town, bottom line. And uh, as far as the Bronx is concerned, oh, and, and the other thing about the Mets, who knows how that division's going to stack up. Washington's still very good, but they're not great um, anymore. And uh, the Phillies, who knows, they're still a work in progress, apparently, with the rumors about those two guys. And uh, Atlanta still needs some starting pitching. And uh, that's going to be a really interesting division. And then, uh, you know, you asked about the Bronx. Uh, yeah, let's go across town. So, yeah, they'll be they'll, – they're obviously, they're going to be really, really good. I think they need a little bit more uh, starting pitching depth. But, uh, you know, we now live in a time where it, uh, we, we throw a parade for a pitcher who gets uh, 15 outs and qualifies for a win. <laughs> it's a different time, yeah. Yeah, it's really crazy, yeah. It's just not how it is anymore. What else about the Yankees' moves interest you? Are you surprised? I guess they're still not out of the Machado-Bryce Harper deals. There seems to be a different headline on those guys every day. I mean, we're here on February 13th already, and, and nothing's imminent, it seems. You know, So what do you think of this team, and how specifically do you think Didi will affect uh, their infield? I think Didi is the single most important player on the roster. Yeah. Uh, saying that even before he got hurt here, uh, it, it just because he sets the tone on, on, on so many different levels and uh, is a fantastic player. Uh, there's no weakness in his game. Uh, they will get along well. I like the additions they made. Uh, I think they're going to be, uh, I think they'll get along uh, with uh, uh, 
with two low to Lewiski, um, maybe moving DJ LeMayu over there, uh, moving Torres over there. Uh, they got plenty of depth at shortstop. They'll be fine. And, uh, um, I'm anxious to see what's going to happen once and for all with Sanchez. I think this is his last chance. And, uh, he better get it going. Yeah, la- yeah. last year seemed like it was really going to be the breakout year, and then he started having the defensive struggles, which were only compounded by uh, by injuries, and it just sort of became a lost year for him. I still feel like he is the best pure hitter, uh, just who steps in the box and can see it and hit it, as far as that goes for the Yankees. But you're right. I, I think he may reach the end of his rope if he has uh, subpar enough year uh, in 2019 they, 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 you know they were they were very weak in the catching department in the minor leagues they replenished that last draft they'll probably do it again in june um so they can uh, see what they've got and uh, it's just amazing to me the lack the dearth of good good catchers in the major leagues it's amazing how that position has diminished itself and uh do you think there's any reason for that specifically? Because you're right, it used to be so strong for the past few decades, and now, now it's not. And uh, I don't, you know, you can't say, "Well, we're going to go out and get a catcher." You, you can't go out and get a catcher. It's not that easy anymore. And there's just a handful of guys, really, on one hand, you can name that you say, "That this guy's great." Uh, but I think that uh, it's a pivotal year for Sanchez, uh, and the rest of them are fine. I'm I'm very concerned about the Red Sox being able to hang on, even though I, I have the world of respect for the manager and the organization, um, because of uh, their bullpen, and uh, I'm I'm concerned I'm concerned about their bullpen. But look, they went into the postseason with great post uh, great bullpen concerns, even with Kimbrel. That's right, and they were fantastic. But then brilliantly, Alex compensated for that by bringing the starting pitchers out of the bullpen and that's how they won a world series yeah who knows if that's going to be i mean a continuing theme during the season or or in future playoff series like what tampa bay started for example um yeah it's it'll be very interesting actually because i think i heard something that said uh where Bumgarner was approached with that and and and, and i think he shot that down pretty vehemently um <laughs> which uh Baseball is changing, and actually, that reminds me. I wanted to ask you what you thought about the rules. You know, the uh, the seven rules that were proposed. Uh, I really thought that the twenty second sort of pitch clock, like the uh, I guess the equivalent for the NFL for the for the play clock. Um, I thought of, of the seven that were proposed, that was the one that I could really get behind uh, most immediately. At least, did you? Um, what What did you think about that? I agree with you. I, I think uh, they've got to do something. Um, they, they talk. They talk about differentiating. The commissioner talks about differentiating time a game with the pace a game. Hmm. I understand that, but they're they're intertwined. Of course. And now, now we have since minor leagues instituted the clock in 2015. Now we got a lot of pitchers that are up in the major leagues who are used to that clock. Yeah. And I think that I think that's great. I think it is enormously important for baseball to. Um, try to improve pace of play and uh, to reintroduce aspects of the game that the analytics people are saying aren't beneficial to a team. Um, and, and, and that goes into some of the other, that goes to some of the other rule changes. But I hope that, uh, like, for example, mm-hmm. Kansas City lost 104 games last year 
And on my Sirius XM show, uh, right around Christmas, I had Ned Yost on, who, by the way, I started with him when I was making $3 a game. Yost was catching for the Mets, so we go back many, many Really? <laughs> yeah, he was in Batavia as a catcher, and we've been friends forever. So anyway, I, I had him on. They've lost 104 games, and he's got all these jackrabbits on the team. They just brought in Billy Hamilton. They got Merrifield. They got all these guys. And I, and I said, I said, Ned? I hope you guys run teams out of the ballpark because that's going to reintroduce a great dimension to the game, excitement to the game, which is the running game. Yeah, manufacture runs. Manufacture runs, uh, which is a lost art, and which I think was the difference between the Red Sox and the Yankees last season. And I'm hoping that the Royals run wild. That's a very large ballpark. It's very difficult to hit home runs in Kansas City. And uh, I hope. I, I think they could improve in the standings uh, by a number of games if they're successful with their running game. He should heed your advice, and that would that would be amazing, uh, just from a fan perspective. And like you said, it would raise it would just raise baseball back to another level. Um, I feel like I feel like the uh, the Red Sox during those years where where they got over the where they got past the Yankees and, and won those World Series, they uh, you know that's how they were doing it. You know, right. they had. Um, you know, and, and and the Phillies when they were dominating those years, you know, I forget his name, but I of course remember his nickname, the Flying Hawaiian. Um, you know, they were Team Victorina. Yeah, thank you. You know, guys like that are are just. I'm about the intangibles, I guess, and and the gray area, and it just seems that baseball may have not lost sight of that, but they're not focusing on it, and uh, it would be great for that to come back. So, um. Really good insight, and and I and I really look forward to the Yankees and the Mets this year, as I'm sure a lot of fans here in the New York area have already turned their attention. It's February, but we're all excited about baseball. Is there anything else? I love the stories you told, and anything else uh, that we should that we should look out for, uh, either on your show or just anything I haven't asked you. No, you uh, did a terrific job. All right. Well, Ed, thanks for joining me and coming on. Great stories, as always, and, and your cause, Fans for the Cure. I would encourage people to check it out and obviously get educated. And, of course, tune in on Sunday mornings for your show on WFAN. Thanks. It's uh, fansforthecure.org. Using the numeral four, we provide doctor referrals. We provide hospital referrals. If there is any question that you may have, come to us at fansforthecure.org, and we'll find you some help. Take the terror out of it. Make the make you believe that you are not alone. And it doesn't even have to be prostate cancer. It can be just a prostate issue. Whatever it is, we're here for you 24-7. That's great. Great job by you, Ed. Thanks again. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. My thanks to Ed for coming on and joining me. To speak with someone who has dedicated their profession to telling such intimate stories was very refreshing. But his selfless work on preventing prostate cancer is incredible and truly knows no bounds. Just a reminder, you can catch Ed Randall's Talking Baseball Sundays on WFAN from 9 to 11 a.m. And you could also hear him on his Baseball Nostalgia show, Remember When, Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. on Sirius Radio, Channel 89. And you can follow me at BenjaminBlock21 on Twitter or at my website, BenjaminJBlock.com. Either way, I'd love to connect and hear from you. Until next time, this has been Benjamin Block. Thanks for listening.